0: Amen. Hey, all right, let's do this. Starting our sermon series, Life Under the Sun. If you had to put another title uh, to the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what I would put. Uh, But obviously, the Lord chose the word Ecclesiastes, which just means the preacher. And uh, so we're going to dive into that study tonight. I am, it is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. And uh, I preached years ago. Oh, it'd probably be like six years ago now. Uh, I preached a five-part series through Ecclesiastes, and really just covered some of the high points. But one of my goals as a preacher, and you know this— is to preach through every word of the Bible, and I think it's a preacher's responsibility to preach the entire counsel of God. I don't know any other way to do that other than preaching the entire counsel of God, and uh, so we're going to come back. We've got a block of time uh, before we start our next uh, life stage groups. Um, Sometime next year, it's on the calendar. You'll see the calendar on Vision Sunday, but before we get to that, we're going to dive into this particular book. We've got about 12 weeks and 12 chapters, and uh, so sometimes it'll be a little bit heavier lifting, and uh, like tonight, and so you picked a good night to be here uh, because it's both a, a jam-packed chapter, but it's also the night we're going to introduce the understanding of the book. And so uh, if you're with us online, don't tune out. If you're with us here, also don't tune out. And uh, we're going to lay the groundwork for why this book is in the Bible and its significance really, at least in my understanding of it, is drawn from the why. Why does this book exist? It is extremely unique. There's not another book like it in the, in the entire Bible. Um, in its content and its in, in, in its inclusion into scripture, and uh, we'll develop some of that. Uh, to me, it's one of the most useful books uh, in the whole Bible, uh, especially in the in the Old Testament as far as it relates and application to our lives. Uh, but it's one of my favorite and I trust that it will become one of your favorites as well. But let me, and let me encourage you with a little bit of caution, don't be in such a hurry to join that club. Um, there's a lot of people who love the book of Ecclesiastes, but have no idea what the book of Ecclesiastes is genuinely about. And I don't mean that to say, like, I know and you don't, I'm better. Uh, it's just one of those books that even had a conversation recently with someone who did not understand the fundamental premise of the book. And uh, it's so incredibly important to understand a little bit of backstory. So we will get to Ecclesiastes 1, but we're actually going to start in 1 Kings. And so uh, go ahead and jump over there. We'll develop the life of the author in just a few moments. But um, it's important to know why God chose to add this particular book. It's one of those super quotable books. Um, There's a lot of quotes taken out of this um, from people who have zero understanding of what the book actually is. And uh, for some of my uh, more elderly uh, more seasoned, folks, you'll remember in the 60s and in the 70s, uh, there was a chart-topping song called Turn, 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 and uh, it was written, the entirety of the song was written out of uh, uh, X, or Ecclesiastes chapter number three, to everything there is a season, a time, two more. Sing it, Brother Reese. What? How's the second verse go? Brother Reese knows it. Okay, yeah, that's good. We're good. We'll, we'll take that. <laughs> Uh, but there's a lot of people who take this book and take to this book uh, because it is profound, but it's also extremely depressing if you don't understand it. Uh, we were joking about it uh, with the staff today. And I said, hey, listen, if you're suicidal, read the book of, of Ecclesiastes, you'll find the nearest bridge. And Brother Hunter said, well, if you're not suicidal and you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you might still find the nearest bridge. And that is, that is true if you do not understand the fundamental premise of the book. Um, one of the most notable statements, will be right off the bat, we'll get to it in the very first chapter, that everything is empty. Everything is pointless, it's futile. And if you read the book without a a basis, without a, I'll say this as well, without a rich understanding of Jesus, man, this book will bury you. Uh, but if you can keep your head uh, not buried in, in life under the sun, but in life above the sun, in life in heaven, and that's the fundamental difference that we'll develop in a little bit. So the richness of this book isn't found in its quotability, but rather in its unique reason why God even put it in the canon of scripture in the first place. So in 1 Kings, we're going to look at that in just a second, but the word Ecclesiastes, just a little bit of a background, the word Ecclesiastes just means the preacher. And Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse number one, tells us that Solomon Solomon. Solomon is the one who writes this book and we'll see that verse in a little bit. But basically, essentially it says that the son of David who reigned as king in Jerusalem wrote the book and that's only David. Uh, Adonijah uh, reigned for... A self-appointed second, but then that that was gone. Uh, but Solomon is mentioned as the son of the great king, uh, David. His life uh, had been blessed because of his father's obedience toward God. Uh, for those of you who know the story, maybe you don't, but David had a desire to build a house for the Lord. Um, Moses had built the tabernacle some 300 years earlier, and uh, now David has conquered Jerusalem and set up his kingdom, and he's built his own house. And now uh, David says, man, I'd like for the Lord to, to dwell in, in in a house made of wood and I dwell in a house made of wood and he dwells in tents. Let's build him a house. And even without a command, David's heart was for God. He didn't need a command to do it. He took the initiative and said, man, I want to honor the Lord in these things. But as some of you know, David was a bloody man. He, uh, he was both a bloody man by battle and by the fact that he murdered Uriah. And so God said that David would not be allowed to build him a house. However, he, his son that would come after him, Solomon, would be able to build him a house and that God would grant him special peace in his day to accomplish such things. And so David began in, in the end of his life to store up for his son so he might build this house for God. Now, we're gonna jump to the very end of David's life and do a brief just history uh, account of Solomon and how he became king and, and where he went wrong and why we find the book of Ecclesiastes. And so just bear with me a little bit. We'll do some reading. We'll pray and we're going to jump in after prayer into Ecclesiastes 1. So let's dive into 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse number 1. David is still alive, but he's at the very end of his life. Um, I want to encourage you, I may reiterate this in a moment, but I want to encourage you to read 1 Kings chapter 2 through 12. Um, you're going to find the, the chronology of Solomon's life, his rise to the, uh, the throne and what he did, and man, the great things he accomplished. And I mean, it's like reading the back of someone's baseball card. I mean, there's just a bunch of stats that Solomon was able to accomplish uh, in his life. And it is worth reading, knowing that that's the man who wrote the book we're gonna start studying tonight. Now, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse one says, "'Now the days of David drew nigh that he should die. "'And he charged Solomon his son, saying, "'I go the way of all the earth.'" Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man. Some good fatherly advice, which David is not known for, <laughs> uh, it, it, just to be fair. David is not known for his fatherly advice. David was a great king and a, a great lover of the Lord, but a terrible father. I was talking with Brother Bob about that earlier this month. That's a, that's a scary thing, that you can be a lover of the Lord and a lover of Jesus and even a great leader for the kingdom of God and be a terrible father. That's a scary, sad reality. And so David was a prolific leader, fantastic king, amazing man after God's own heart, but he lost nearly all of his children. And here at the end of his life, we find him telling his son, hey, be a man, verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God, to go in his way, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whithersoever thou turnest thyself that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me saying, if thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. And so David reiterates these promises to Solomon that if you'll do right, God will keep the throne in our family. And we know, you keep reading after this, you're going to find that the throne does depart from Solomon. And uh, it's just a sad thing. Solomon doesn't follow this at the end of his life. But Solomon is then uh, established as king. Uh, His first few acts as king are to clear out Joab and some other enemies of David's throne. And uh, then you get to chapter number three, and this is very significant. So just look over there. Uh, First Kings chapter three, verse number five is where we'll pick up. Uh, Solomon has a dream, and the Lord appears to him in this dream. First Kings chapter three, verse five. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. Uh, And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And so Solomon, essentially, when he's given the opportunity, God says, what can I give you? Solomon says, listen, Lord, let me just establish the fact that I'm only king because you love my dad. And uh, my dad did right and you made me king. And so I know by grace, I'm in this position. He doesn't flaunt himself. He doesn't do as Pharaoh would do toward God where he you know, postures himself. He he comes and he says, Lord, I I understand. The only reason I'm here is because you were gracious to my father because he was obedient to you. Verse number seven, and now, O Lord, my God, thou hast made thy servant, me, Solomon, servant king instead of David, my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in. He says, I don't even understand the, the process of when I'm supposed to go out or when I'm supposed to come in. If it's raining, should I stay out there? If it's not raining, should I come in? When, when does the king enter? When doesn't the king enter? He, he doesn't understand how this whole thing works. Uh, uh, he doesn't understand, should I go out to the podium? Should I come out for, in for the podium? He doesn't get it. So look what verse 8, look what he asks. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. He says, Lord, you've given me this massive responsibility and I do not have what it takes. I don't have the, uh, the, the, the acumen of my father or the experience of my father. I, I don't know what to do. Verse nine, give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad for who is able to judge this, so, uh, this thy so great a people. So Solomon asks for wisdom to lead the people of God. Uh, sidebar, that's a powerful request. Um, if you were given this opportunity by God, hey, Casey, you can ask me of anything. What would you ask for? Oh, Lord, I want a giant church or I want a big house or I want, you know, the life of my enemies. And those are all things that would have been, uh, especially that last one, would have been asked by a king. But he didn't ask for any of that. He didn't ask for wealth. He asked for God to give him clarity of heart to know how to lead his people. That's a powerful responsibility and a powerful ask. Look at verse number 10. And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast uh, hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast thou asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And so God grants him this request. And he says, I will make you the wisest man to ever live, both past and future, obviously apart from the Lord Jesus himself. But notice what else the Lord gives Solomon because his speech or his ask pleased the Lord. Verse 13. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then will I lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offer, and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. So you can keep reading the story, which I would encourage you to do. We won't tonight, but this is now the, the, the narrative that happens where a woman uh, rolls over on her child and Solomon's famous, you know, cut the child in half. And the real mother says, no, 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 let her take it. And Solomon immediately has this God-given opportunity to display this supernatural wisdom. And God has given to Solomon the request of his heart that he might have Wisdom, powerful wisdom, and that's crucial. We're not, just, we're not just wandering or tangenting. This is so important to the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me give you the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is at its basis just understanding how the world works, understanding how economies work and people work and psychology works and understanding how relationships work and families work and leadership works. Uh, It's at a basis just understanding how the world works. But I would add on top of that, because there are people who can have that level of wisdom, but the kind of wisdom Solomon was given wasn't just an understanding of how things work, but an understanding of how God sees the world. And understanding how God would choose in a situation, how God would handle a situation, it's understanding the mind of God in matters uh, both uh, of, of men and of heaven and earth. And so Solomon is given this supernatural wisdom, the ability to discern how God would handle a situation. And it's from this place, this foundation, and this fountain of wisdom that Solomon receives of the Lord that he goes into his kingship very early on as a young man, and he excels at. Every single thing he touches. He is a powerful king, mastering military strength. And this is why I say you just keep reading. It's like the back of a baseball card. I mean, he did this and he built this and he built this city and he accomplished this and he freed this and his fame begins to spread and kings begin to come uh, and, and just uh, a marvel at his incredible wisdom, power, and strength. The wealth of his kingdom excels. He builds this magnificent temple for the Lord, dedicates it in the honor and worship to God. Uh, and you can, you can, like I said, read the, these 10 chapters of 1 Kings and it records the splendid and the accomplishments that his wisdom afforded him. But look with me at the very first word of chapter 11, 1 Kings. This is very important. This is very, very important because the book of Ecclesiastes has not been written yet. The book of wisdom of Proverbs was written during uh, that reign of righteousness and wisdom of Solomon, but he hadn't written the book of Ecclesiastes until after chapter 11 of 1 Kings. Look at verse number one, it says, but... King Solomon loved many strange women. So this this list of accolades and powerful accomplishments and this God-ordained wisdom that he could look at a situation and know the mind of God and how the world works and how people work and human nature works and psychology and all of this just incredible discernment and ability, totally intact totally engaged, totally being used for the glory of God. And he brings in wise men to build and to carve and to lay gold. And he's just incredible in all that he accomplishes. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughters of Pharaoh, the women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Zidonians, and the Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said, verse number two, unto the children of Israel, ye shall not go in unto them neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after their gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as David his as did David his father. And then Solomon builded, then did Solomon build an high place uh, for Chemosh, the abominations of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem and for. Molech, Molech is the God you offer your child through the fire, child sacrifice. And he builds for for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. So this once great, prolific, unrivaled wise man follows his heart into deep depravity. And here's what he forfeited. He forfeited the spirit of God like Saul did. He forfeits the blessings of God. He forfeits the, uh, God's presence uh, in his life. In fact, he will even forfeit the kingdom for his sons. And he becomes, in his own words, an old and foolish king. But one thing he did not forfeit, this is very unique, his wisdom. Even as he loses the presence of God, even as he loses the anointing and just the joy and the, uh, all that comes with you, what you and I would know, a life lived for the Lord. There's just that peace and that, that void inside of you is filled. Well, now it's been emptied, but it's in this stage of emptiness that he writes the book of Ecclesiastes, which is extremely unique. And this is why I say there's no other book like this because when you and I think of those who wrote the Bible, sometimes we mistakenly make them very porcelain and very perfect and they have a halo around their head. And I mean, look at all the, the art of the, you know, the, the dark ages, right? And Paul has this beautiful uh, you know, halo about him as he's penning the book of Ephesus. That's simply not the case, but I will say this: What Second Peter one twenty one says, "For prophecy came not in the old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost." So yes, Paul had the anointing and the presence of God, and, and uh, the, the Holy Ghost was writing through him as he wrote the book of the, uh, the books of the Bible that he did, and that happened for Solomon when he wrote Proverbs. But when he wrote Ecclesiastes, that presence and that joy and that peace is gone one thing he retains is his wisdom. And it is this reality that makes this book so powerful because even in his backslidden state, Solomon is allowed to keep the understanding and discernibility that God would have. Now, why would the Lord do that? Why would God give Solomon the ability to understand still with great God level, kind, not God level, but godly wisdom because he didn't deserve it. But here's, what we, here's why God let it happen. God knew you and I, would need a front row seat to what perfect backsliding could be. And by perfect backsliding, I mean this. In a backslidden state, you and I will search for things to fill the gap and the void that once the spirit of God filled. And you and I can chase after it, but here's the problem. You and I don't have endless wealth. And we just think, well, I could be happy if I could just do that one thing, but I I can't because I don't have the money. And if I could live on a private island, then I would genuinely be happy and I wouldn't need God because I could do all these things. Well, Solomon could do all of those things and did do nearly all of those things and went and chased after life under the sun. That's mentioned 26 times in this 12 chapter book. And Ecclesiastes is a commentary on what life is like lived outside of the presence of God. What life is like lived in trying to pursue, filling the God-shaped hole in humanity, trying to fill it with every other thing. On On a very realistic level, Ecclesiastes is a human level exploration mission. What makes me happy? What can fill the void? So Solomon sets out with his wisdom completely intact, chasing after. He's got a giant hole in his heart. He has no joy, no presence of God, but he has a secure grasp on wisdom and sets out to try everything under the sun that he thinks will make him happy. He tries pleasure. And he tries women and he tries power and possessions, accomplishments, industry, money, uh, music, gardening, alcohol, everything the human heart thinks that would fill the void. And I love this, this particular book for, for all Christians, but particularly young people, because young people have this ridiculous idea that if I had LeBron James money, then I could be happy. LeBron James had nothing on Solomon. But if I had Steve Jobs or if I had Jeff Bezos level industry, Jeff Bezos has nothing on Solomon. Solomon could accomplish whatever he wanted to, to a tune that no living human being ever before or ever since has ever been able to accomplish. And here's the thing. God allowed Solomon to retain his wisdom so he could give us a front row seat from God's perspective in backsliding. But listen, if anybody could set out to fill the void, it'd be Solomon. If anybody could accomplish whatever they wanted to, it was Solomon. But notice the truth captured just real quick in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We won't read this till next week, but we'll briefly steal it from the text um, so we can see what I mean about Solomon retaining his wisdom. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse number 9 says, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever my eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. This was my portion of all my labor. So he says, anything I wanted, I took. Anything I wanted, I tasted, I held, I kept. And here's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. Sitting across, and I've said this before years ago when I did the study, and and I think I preached on it about a a year ago from Ecclesiastes 8. What Ecclesiastes is, imagine in your mind, if we could put it in a picture, you're sitting on this side of the table and on the other side of the table is not a food critic, but a life critic. Someone who, and you think about a food critic, right? A food critic will go to a restaurant and they have a more developed palate than us and they understand how it works and they understand service and you know, they understand what the bar should be. And here you have a man with God-given wisdom critiquing what life under the sun is like. And it is hard to listen to. It is affronting. I hate the word raw, but it, there's not a better word to describe it. It is so incredibly uncomfortable and it's depressing. But here's the thing, everything he says, he's not wrong. How could he not be wrong? Because God let him keep his wisdom. And here's the thing, if, 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 if God had taken the wisdom of Saul, from Solomon away Solomon wouldn't have written what he wrote. Uh, If you were to go out, and I'll I'll illustrate it this way if you were to go out today and to go ask the random, just a random coworker or friend or homeless person on the street, hey, are you happy where you were at? In their soul, they'd have to say no, but they probably won't say no. You think about that coworker living to, to get the car and the car payment and the girl and the this and this endless rat race that at the end of the night they're empty and they know it. They'd never say that on Instagram because they don't have wisdom. But if they had the wisdom Solomon did, in the effort and opportunity that Solomon did, and the wisdom Solomon did, they would write the exact same book that Solomon writes. That it is van- vanity, it is empty, therefore I hated life because I was stuck in this endless rat race. And so yes, it is a painful conversation with the most qualified critic of life under the sun. Now, I wanna say this, and we're gonna pray in just a second. This is a hard book to read because you gotta put your head under water for a long time. And really, if you want to, you can steal ahead and read chapter 12. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is the whole duty of man. There's an answer to it. He comes up at the very end of of the book and maybe even the very end of his life. We don't know if Solomon ever got right with God or not, but he at least knew what filled the hole. But he spends 11 chapters explaining what doesn't fill the hole. And it's extremely difficult to read those 11 chapters because you're just head down underwater, holding your breath, listening to how painful life is. And as much as you want to be like, no, it's not that bad, Apart from God, it is genuinely that bad. And so here's what we gotta do. I'm gonna try to be disciplined and I'm gonna try to encourage you to, okay, come up for air real quick. That's life under the sun. Here's what a Christian's life should be. But the problem is that's gonna not be in the text because for 11 straight chapters, it's life under the sun. And so please, I I tell you that to try to warn you to not, not, not come, okay? Uh, Because it is gonna be 11 weeks of difficult sitting with this critic, but everything he says is right. Everything he says is true. He lays the ax to everything you and I think. That brings us happiness. That'll breed happiness. If I could just have a little more, but Solomon already did it. In fact, he's going to tell us there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that is has already been tried, which is important. That's a really foundational truth we're going to get to in a minute. So if you're ready to dive in, I hope you're a strong swimmer. I hope you keep Christ at the center of your heart and your mind, knowing that life, is, life under Jesus is not oppressive, But life under the sun is very oppressive. There's no real value to anything. If there is no heaven, then we are of all men most miserable. If this is it, then Solomon is right. And here's the heartbreaking part. This is it for the overwhelming majority of humanity. They will live and gain and wake up. I was talking to my kids about this tonight at the dinner table. Just the folks who live around us, right, who don't know Jesus. They'll wake up at five in the morning. They'll get in their car. They'll go work in the oil fields. They'll come home to go to bed, to wake up, to go to work, come home, go to bed, to wake up, and then they die and everything they amassed goes to somebody else. That's That's the book of Ecclesiastes in a really overly condensed kind of nugget. And so it's tough, but it's a beautiful look for a Christian to remember that life under the sun is not our life. This was our life and this is their life, and you and I can be Solomon and go back to this life, but I promise you nothing, and so- Solomon promises us that nothing out there will ever fill what God was designed, in- God didn- God, what God designed inside of us for him to fill. So there's a buoy of hope for us, but not for the lost. So let's pray. Father, would you guide us tonight? Lord, give us some wisdom as we study this book. Give us some courage uh, to be able to look at some hard truths this evening and over the next few weeks, but Lord, it is profound and it is powerful. There are gonna be some young people in the room tonight who genuinely think that they could figure out what Solomon couldn't. They genuinely think if I could just have this career and have this person and do this thing, I would be happy. If I could get out from my parents and go chase this thing, I could be happy. And Lord, would you allow the, the critic of life here, Solomon, to speak some sense into the young person's heart? Maybe even in the room, there's an adult who thinks, I don't think church is for me. I'm just gonna go, it's really not meeting my needs. I wanna be able to go back to what I I once did and I wanna go chase this thing or this person. Father, would you help us to have some wisdom tonight and listen to the man who tried it all? And Lord, I pray that you would allow us, God, wisdom from Solomon in his backsliding, God. Bless us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's get after it. Ecclesiastes chapter one. uh, The way we're gonna structure tonight may or may not continue um, through the the rest of the the studies and chapters. Um, It may, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes is unique in that it's not narrative. And so um, rather than being a story, it's kind of blocks of statements. And so he'll make this big block statement and then just almost disjointed, he'll make another statement. Um, Some of these statements go together. And so uh, depending on the structure of the chapter, we may uh, do it a little different. Tonight, what we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack a block and say, all right, here's what he's talking about and here's how that applies. And then the next block, in some respects, will be associated, but not perfectly. A little bit like the book of Proverbs where one passage might not bleed into the next one. It's just wisdom literature and that's, that's exactly what Ecclesiastes is. It's wisdom literature, but from the, the backsliding side and not the, the, the in the presence of God side. So let's get after it. Ecclesiastes chapter one. Verse number one, we'll travel a little bit and do some reading. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And again, that's why we know Solomon wrote it. Solomon's name isn't in the book at all, but we do know uh, that Solomon was the only uh, king of uh, Jerusalem through the line of David. Again, uh, Adonijah uh, for a second uh, declares himself king, but David squashes that. Uh, but notice the second verse, uh, and this, uh, the first one is the content. Uh, and then, the, then we get to second, or, or the first one rather, is who wrote it. And then the second one is just right out the gates. Okay, look at it. Verse number two, vanity of vanities, saith the preachers. Preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, vanity isn't maybe what you and I might think of exactly we We think of maybe a woman looking in a mirror at herself, and that's vain uh, uh, and that 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 has that's the personality the word has taken on. But the definition of the word I'm just going to read it for you it's super important because you're going to hear that word like a drum beaten in every single chapter. It's probably the word that appears the most, and there's probably not even a close second. Vanity is the word that appears the most, and it means this: meaninglessness, emptiness, utility uselessness. What is of no use on the basis of being futile and lacking any content, okay? Another definition is the word vapor or something that has no substance or tangibility. And that's really important. We'll come back to that. So essentially what Solomon is saying is that all is vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is meaningless, all is empty, all is futile or pointless. It's all useless. It lacks any holdability. And I know that's not a real word. It lacks any tangibility. It can't be kept. It can't be, it's like a vapor you try to grasp. In fact, James brings us some content on that very thought that life is but a vapor. And so Solomon is not off on anything. Uh, And we might not wanna spend a bunch of time with that reality because it is genuinely heavy, but it is true of life under the sun. Nothing you and I do, no pleasure we experience, no meal that we eat, no possession we hold or relationship we develop truly has any substance in this life. Now, as a Christian, I hope your deep understanding of Christ is modifying that statement to your reality that like, hey, no, my relationships do have eternal purpose. Yes, you're absolutely right. You have a deep understanding of Christology, who he is and who you are in him. That modifies everything in this book, but Solomon's not there. Solomon is out in the world chasing his own pleasure and everything is empty, uh, I remember learning this truth kind of in, a, in an affronting way. I had just been saved. I was a brand new Christian. Um, I was 12 or 13 years old, and my parents, um, they, they, they refinanced their home and for some reason decided to take us to Hawaii with it. And uh, so here I am, 12 or 13, and I was hard to impress, right? I went to the Grand Canyon, and I was like, okay. You know, so it's it's a big hole, right? I mean, what what does it do for me? And so we went to Hawaii and man, we did all kinds of stuff. You know, they had more money than they they should have spent on a trip for eight of us to go to Hawaii and man, we scuba dived and we, you know, we did snorkeling and we did all this stuff. I've only been there once. It's the one time. And I remember loving the trip, getting back on the plane and this weird feeling happened that like, okay, I'm going to leave it. So now what? Like, like I've got, I've got trinkets that'll break right? I've got pictures, but that's just ink on paper. I've got memories, but that's just a vapor. There's nothing tangible about it. In fact, I, I used this story this, this evening. I was talking to the kids about the sermon, and uh, one of my sons said, man, that was what was so hard about our trip to Utah is that you leave, and it's it's over. There's nothing holdable in any pleasure you experience. There's nothing durable in any possession that you hold. There, none of it Has any substance. It's a vapor. It appears and it's here and then it's gone and everything you held falls through your hands. It is, in a word, vanity. And I know that's heavy because it seems a bit ungrateful, right? And it's depressive and you may not like it, but the unarguable truth is that Solomon's right. Life lived apart from God, the job you chase for what? The retirement you build up in that account to die and leave it. The house or the car that you end up with one day, it's just stuff. Your legacy for what? You don't get to take any of it with you. And the fact of the matter is, Solomon's gonna come after every pleasure you and I enjoy. And again, when Jesus steps into the picture, that modifies it, right? Even the car you have can have eternal significance, but not life under the sun. Man, everything you chase and live for and build is eventually going to be, I love, I know I'm cherry picking from Solomon's words, but he says, man, wise men live their lives and build wealth only to leave it to fools who never earned it. It's true. It's, it's a hard reality. And that's what Ecclesiastes is. So, listen, fools don't see this reality. They stumble from one fix to the next, man. And that's why, that's why Solomon needed to have wisdom in this journey, because a fool would just say, okay, yeah, well, the next vacation, okay, and that'll make me happy. And that new thing, and that bigger present, and that bigger, you know, that newer phone, it's all going to make me happy. And a fool would, would, would lie to you and say, yeah, I love it. But Solomon's too wise for that. Solomon says, you know, I buy the newest iPhone, so the, newest, the next iPhone comes out in eight months. And then this one dies, they brick it. And all this stuff that told me it would make me happy never makes me happy. That's a true observation. So let's keep reading if you can. Look at verse three. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? This is important. This is part of our first big truth. But here's what he says. Well, let's put it in our context, right? As a child, you wake up and you go to school. Why? So you can get an education. Why do I have to get an education? So you can graduate high school and get more education. Now, why are you going to get more education after high school? Why, so my education can get me an occupation. Now, why do I get an occupation? So I, can, I can get my occupation so I can have stuff. Why do I get stuff? So I can leave it. So I can put it in the garage. So moth and rust corrupt it. Thieves break through and steal. Look at verse number three. It's inescapable. Verse, uh, verse number four, I'm sorry. One generation passeth away. And another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. He says, listen, every living human being before you left everything they got. And you and I will be no different. So here's the first major truth. (laughs) It's hard. I get it. Number one, first major truth Ecclesiastes is going to teach us is that nothing is defensible. Nothing is defensible. You can put insurance on your house. That's still not defensible. You can get the, uh, the warranty on the product, but it's still not defensible. And Solomon is about to set out on this giant illustration of this exact truth. Nothing can be kept. And he's gonna set out on this, this look at, at uh, basically uh, nature itself and the cycle. And he's gonna use water as an example. Look at it, verse number uh, five, and then verse six is where he's gonna get into the wind. And then verse seven, he'll get into the water. Look at verse five. He said, the sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteneth to his place where he arose. So it goes back to where it came from. Verse six, the wind goeth toward the south and turneth about into the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. So the wind comes strong blowing from the north to the south, but it'll eventually blow from the south to the north and go back to where it came from. Verse seven, all the rivers run into the sea yet the sea is not full unto the place from whence the river cometh. Thither they return again. So the rain falls into the rivers and the rivers empty into the sea, but the sea is never full. Why? Because the sea gives the water back to the rain. So the rain can drop it back in the rivers. So the rivers can put it back in the ocean. So the oceans will give it up to the rain. Everything goes back to where it came from. If the ocean could keep the water, it would, but it can't. The sky can't keep the wind where it blew it. It can't keep it. The day, if it wanted to keep the sun, It couldn't, it goes back to where it came from. Ultimately, nothing in life under the sun is defensible. Look what he says back in verse number four, where we started. He says, one generation passeth away and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Listen, this first reality that Solomon is teaching us is that in life, apart from the providence of God and the goodness of God, nothing you and I can accomplish is durable. You can spend your life amassing wealth, but that that wealth is gonna go right back to where it came from. You can build your health and strength and all of that, but from dust you came into dust you will go. You can spend your life filling your house with things, but eventually at your death, at the estate sale, it's going to get sold to some lady down the street or given to the goodwill. It will all go back to where it came from. You cannot hold on to life or anything any more than the ocean can hold on to the rain. But again, may I remind you of the buoy you and I have in Jesus, that we live a life not under the sun, but under heaven. Your life, if given to Jesus, cannot be lost. In fact, if you lose your life for his sake, you will save it in eternity. Your things, if used for his kingdom, actually possess eternal value. Your health, if used for the glory of God to accomplish the will of God, is something that can never lose its reward, not even the cup of cold water in the name of a disciple. Your retirement and your retirement years, if given to Jesus, have eternal significance and can have great long-lasting value. First big truth, number one, is that nothing is defensible, which is a real problem if you feel the need to defend it. If you feel the need to, man, I got to build, and I got to have, and I got to keep, and I got to defend, I'm telling you, the ocean can't keep the rain even if it wants to. And you can't keep your health even if you want to. You can spend all the money and all the time and all the ability, but as, as, as he will say, time and chance happeneth to us all. That's what Solomon will say in this book. So big truth, number one, nothing's defensible. Number two, we're going to pick him in verse 8 is that there is no new thing, this is important, this is so crucial, I'm glad it happens at the beginning of the book because it sets a stage for us for the rest of the book. There is no new thing to satisfy the human heart under the sun. There is no new experience that hasn't been experienced, listen, and there's nothing you will accomplish that wasn't accomplished before you and, and, and someone coming after you will accomplish and erase your accomplishment. That's where Solomon's going. Look at verse number eight. All things are full of labor, man cannot utter it the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What he's saying is in the human mind and heart, you're never gonna see enough things and be like, I'm done seeing, right? I saw Hawaii once, I don't ever wanna go back. Now you might have that mindset, but the fact of the matter is your eye desires to see more. Your your ears desire to hear more, to accomplish more, to discover more. Uh, You're never gonna get to the time where you just say, yeah, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. I don't wanna experience anything new in life, which is a problem he's setting us up for. Verse nine, the thing that hath been is that which shall be. So he says, the past, folks, is your future. Now we know that's true in like style, right? It's like bell bottoms are making a comeback and some of that weird stuff's coming back. I hope it doesn't, but he's saying what man has accomplished is what man will accomplish. That which is done, reading the rest of verse number nine, that which is done is that which shall be done. So man, I'm gonna conquer this mountain. Well, someone did it before you. Someone who did it, someone's going to do it after them. And there is no new thing under the sun. Now, this is discouraging, not to all people. Some people, they're like, I do have no desire to climb Mount Everest, right? I've got no desire to, you know, go conquer industry. But for the frontiersman, uh, for the person who wants to go out there and just accomplish things, here's what Solomon said. There's nothing original left. There's no new frontier in the human experience. Someone else has already done it before you. There's no mark you can make with your life that hasn't been made before and won't be made again to erase the mark you made. There's no original thing you can do that hasn't already been done. And doesn't this fly in the face of culture? Culture's like, be original, be authentic, be you, which is just a regurgitation of the kid to your left because nothing is new. No one is original. The human experience is ultimately on repeat until Jesus returns. Look at verse 10. Is there anything whereof it may be said? See, this is new. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. This, matter, uh, this matters because even in reading what Solomon is about to, uh, to try, these, these crazy outlandish adventures and women and money and all these things, here, here's what he's saying. Everything that can be experienced has been experienced. Here's why this matters. Because some knucklehead, hopefully not a knucklehead in this room, some knucklehead could read the book of Ecclesiastes and say, yeah, but he didn't try this. I know he couldn't find happiness in those 93 enumerated things, but this one thing he's never tried, so this will make me happy. No, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no strange flesh that hasn't been tried that isn't already empty. There's no industry you can conquer that hasn't been conquered and didn't make them happy because again the heart of mind and the heart and mind of man is no 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 I know my dad said this and he tried that he was in the world but he didn't try what I'm going to try no, there is nothing new under the sun and Solomon ultimately is going to tell us through this human experience and this expedition into foolishness no I tried it all and everything I could try I did try and there's nothing new left to try so listen the next verse is important to this number 2 truth look at verse 11 there is no remembrance of former things. So there's a pivot that happens. He says, hey, listen, everything you can accomplish has already been accomplished. And then he says in verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things. The only reason you think it's new is because you forgot someone already did it. And why does that matter? What does it matter if we forgot them? Because you will too be forgotten. Every accomplishment you think will make you happy, it will be erased by somebody else's accomplishment. Keep reading. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of the things that are to come with those that shall come afterward. Just like those you forgot when you superseded them. Listen, I'll illustrate it this way. You took someone's office when you got that promotion, and man, you're climbing the ladder. Someone's going to take your office too. Someone's going to erase your sports record in high school that you lived for. Because you erased somebody else's sports record Time is going to erase everything. There's nothing you can try that hasn't been tried and nothing you can do that will ultimately be remembered. Not only is there nothing new, it only feels new because you forgot the people who did it before you. Every celebrity who dies, it's a great way to illustrate it, right? Every celebrity who dies, what does what you know, the news articles say? We will never forget until the next news cycle and nobody has any idea what year Michael Jackson died. Nobody has any idea. I could list celebrities right now. You don't even know if they're dead or not. And perhaps they did. Time always erases. You may have been the best this round, and you feel like I accomplished something no no one has ever accomplished. That's only because you already erased the other guy's record, but somebody's going to erase yours. I'll illustrate it this way. Who won the Super Bowl in 2010? Billions of dollars spent. Hundreds of thousands of people in attendance. How about 2016? The fact of the matter is, I would venture to guess. Does anybody know who won the Super Bowl in 2016? Nope. That was a fair guess, though. He said Patriots. (laughs) That'd be the guess I'd take. It actually was 2015, and it was a Patriots, so I moved it to 2016. That's why the uh, the odd number. Because you have a pretty fair, fair guess. They won like half of that decade. In 2016, the Broncos won. Do we have any Broncos fans in here? Okay. In 2010, the Saints won. Do we have any Saints fans in here? I would venture to guess, even if those were your teams, you wouldn't remember they won that year. Why? Because there is nothing new under the sun and nothing that has been accomplished that won't be accomplished again and again and forgotten and accomplished again and forgotten. So that's big truth number two. There's nothing new, and nothing remembered. Number one is nothing is defensible. Big truth number three, and I think we're finishing here. There is no, oh, this one's tough, okay? Oh, this is why I'm afraid, like, you're not coming back week two, <laughs> Because sitting with this man is hard on the soul. But he's not wrong. Big truth number three. There is no escaping the vanity of life, even if you're aware of it. Uh, I'll illustrate it this way. Let's say you learn what Solomon's teaching us. Let's say you realize, you come to this epiphany moment like, oh man, there isn't anything new and nothing's defensible. Okay, so what do I do? Nothing. You can't get off that rat race even if you wanted to. There's no changing the variables about what we're going to find. Even knowing them doesn't fix them. Even knowing that so if everything I accomplish is going to be forgotten, how do I make sure it's not forgotten? You can't. If everything is really empty and I'm finally realizing that and I'm observing that, how do I make it not empty? Under the sun, you can't. That's what Solomon's about to say. And it is is super hard to, to look at. You're stuck in the cycle Solomon is painfully uncovering for us. Look at verse 12. He'll explain this. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. It says, and I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. So again, he sets out on this expedition to understand in his wisdom, how can I fill the void? I set out to understand how life works. But notice what he says in verse 13. This sore travail. Now that word travail means forced labor. This painful forced labor hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. Here's what he said. It's just life. It is a a, an unescapable slavery that, and he says, that God put on us. That this life is just what it is. There's no getting out of the rat race. There's no escaping the game. Even if you know your life is, all that you're building with your life will break. There's nothing you can do to change its durability. Even if you know you can't defend it. Now I know, it's almost like if you were defending a castle, right? And someone were to point out a point of weakness in the castle's defense. And he says, okay, this is weak. I can't fix it. There's still no way to defend life. These are, uh, listen, there are, there are men who have realized this, right? Uh, and and I, I hesitate to use their names, but there are, there are philosophers and deep thinkers who have realized the empty futility of life and in all their wisdom, still can't prevent anything. Still can't fix anything. Deep, powerful men who have great minds who still can't fix this. And in fact, he's gonna go on and keep telling us even, even deeper. Uh, look at verse number 14. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's like a disease of the soul. Look at, here's verse 15. This is important. This is, this is the whole heart of it. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. And that which is wanting or is lacking cannot be numbered. Here's what he said. Even if you know in all of your wisdom, I set out to understand how life works. And even if I could know how life works, I find, man, that's crooked. I can't even make it straight. Man, this is lacking. How can I make up the lacking? Nope, they're still innumerable. Here's a great example. Look at politics. At both sides of the aisles, if there's just two, right? Both sides of the aisle knows humanity is crooked. They can't fix them. Both sides of the aisle want to fix injustice. There's so many of them. There's still just as many, if not more. Both sides of the aisle desire to fix homelessness and drug addiction and abuse. But that which is crooked cannot be made straight because this is the painful travail that God has given to exercise the sons of men. That's life under the sun. Again, pull up for breath. That's not life under Jesus, okay? But now go back under, okay? So let's get back underneath that. Under the sun, we cannot escape it. You cannot legislate away the crookedness of humanity. You cannot tax it straight. You cannot teach it and lower the numbers through society or school. You cannot indoctrinate away the curse. It's inescapable. Even if you're the wisest man on the planet and you set out to understand how it works and you see how crooked it is, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. Verse 16, I commune with with mine own heart saying, Lo, I am come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. He says, if anybody could understand it, I was the wisest man. I saw better than anybody. And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is vexation of spirit. Notice what he says. For in much wisdom is much grief. He that increaseth knowledge, increaseth sorrow. He's sitting at this end of the table and he says, listen, There's no fixing it under the sun. I'm the wisest person that's ever walked the earth. I set out to know wisdom and foolishness. And you'll see later on, I gave my heart to everything. And that which is crooked cannot be made straight. Listen, listen to Solomon. He teaches us three things in the first chapter. Number one is nothing you can hold or amass is ultimately defensible. Nothing you hold or amass, you'll ever be able to hold. It'll all go back to the sea. It'll all go back to the dust. And then ultimately under the sun, nothing is fixable. The curse will not go away. There is no escaping the curse under the sun. But that again is where Jesus comes in. That again is where your paradigm and my paradigm begin to shift. Now Solomon's going to spend the rest of this book looking in the wrong places, which is why my hope is that in Jesus, in you, you're saying, no, 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 there is a way to fix it. There is a way to escape the curse. There is a way to make my stuff and my relationships and my retirement and my time and my health and all these things that, yes, I'm going to lose them anyway, but I can lose them for Jesus and keep them in heaven. I can lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break through and steal. But Solomon doesn't see that because he set out away from God with all of his wisdom still secured. Thank God for that wisdom because we get that front row narrative of life without the Lord. But again, should we choose to live under the sun and choose to live under, outside of the lordship of Jesus, we're going to become this very unhappy individual. But the fact of the matter is, aside from the Lord, I hate to admit it, but he's right. It is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It is a vexation or a disease of the soul to live in this life apart from Jesus. So that is some wisdom for us in this hour. Chapter number two is gonna bring us some more truth and we're gonna go through this for the next 11 or 12 weeks. I hope that you'll be present. Again, bring a snorkel, right? Our head's underwater, but the snorkel is Jesus. We know for us, the variables are very different. It's a complete different worldview. But this is where you and I used to live and where many of the people we still love live. And so we have an opportunity to bring this wisdom to them and help them come out of that. So let's pray.